Well, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Uh, happy Thanksgiving weekend. I hope everybody had a great holiday. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm the teaching pastor here. Uh, really just a joy and a privilege to be able to worship Jesus alongside of you this morning. I just love uh, hearing a chorus of voices, uh, just singing Jesus' praises. So, so thankful for that. If you're a guest this morning, I do want to just give you a very special welcome. We're so thankful uh, that you've chosen to join us uh, this morning. Guests, really one thing uh, we would ask this morning, there's a QR code in front of you. If you pull out your phone, scan that QR code with your camera app, it'll direct you to lpguest.com. Uh, we would love to have you fill out a digital guest information card. And if you do that, we'll donate $5 to one of our uh, partner ministries, uh, just as a way of saying thanks, a way of giving to our partner ministries, and as a way to connect to you. So we would love uh, for you to do that. Today, we are continuing on in a series we've been in for four weeks. This is the final week of this series before we get into the series uh, leading into Christmas. Um, and the series um, is called Exiles, as you can see on the screens behind me. Uh, and the reason for that title is because we're looking at the life of Daniel uh, in the famous Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their uh, Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names, to be clear. Uh, and what we've seen is, is this big point over and over again each week is that faith is more about how we live than where we live. And the reason for that point is very much, of course, connected and directly tied to the life of faith that we see Daniel and his three friends, his three companions, living in a nation, in a land of exile. Their faith isn't dependent upon being in a certain geographic location. I think for us, it's so important to understand that our faith isn't tied to the family that we come from. Our faith isn't tied to the nation in which we live. Faith is an individual decision to say, I trust Jesus with my life. So often I hear in conversations with folks, how long have you been a Christian? And they say, well, I've gone to church my whole life. Going to church, while it's a great thing to do, doesn't make you a Christian. Faith in Jesus and a repentance of your personal sin makes you a Christian, right? And so we got to remember that and understand that's the reality of what we're talking about in this book. And so over these past number of weeks, we have seen, hopefully that point, lived out. Today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, you can open there to Daniel chapter 6. I will say as well, if you don't have the scriptures, we'll have the text on the screens for you. And I always forget to say this, uh, which is my bad. We have an app as a, as a church too. And so if you go to uh, your app store, it's the LifePoint Ohio app. And the reason I point that out, uh, there's a bunch of resources on there for you. But in the messages, we have interactive notes. And so you can fill in points, you can write notes to yourself and email them to yourself. Again, just a resource for you. Uh, before we get into the text, I want to pray for us because we always need the Lord's help and then we'll go from there. Father, I'm so grateful for this people. Um, I'm so grateful for the church that you have established here in this city that we can be a light for your glory, for your purposes, Father. I pray this morning as we open your word that you would open it to us, that you would help us to understand, that you would glorify yourself in our midst, that you would get me out of the way, help me communicate clearly. Jesus, be magnified as we just sang about. We need you, we love you. It's in Christ's name that we come, Father. Amen. All right, again, Daniel chapter 6. We did skip over chapter 5 if you're curious. Um, we're going to get into chapter 6. The text begins with this. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. Um, the, uh, excuse me. The three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would give account so that the king might not suffer loss. And so you might notice immediately that there's been a change of government. Okay, in the 
Previous chapters, what we've been seeing is the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian king, the great Nebuchadnezzar. He's been sort of um, a primary feature. And now we're given this king, Darius. And what we see in chapter 5, and I know we skipped over that, is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign comes to an end after about 43 years. And Nebuchadnezzar, the next guy in line, is a guy named Belshazzar. Belshazzar is evil and wicked, and you can, uh, if you're looking for something to do this afternoon, you can read Daniel chapter 5, as I know you all will, and so you can read the account in the detail of Belshazzar. He is wicked. He is evil. What happens is Belshazzar takes some of the, the prized possessions from Jerusalem's temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken during the siege that we saw back in chapter 1. He takes these golden cups and things, and he brings them to this big party that is filled with all sorts of ungodly things. And they drink out of the cups from the temple. And then what Belshazzar does is he gives praise and he worships the god of gold and silver and wood. Not a good idea, Belshazzar. And so God brings down a swift judgment upon Belshazzar. What we see is that as a result, the kingdom is stripped away from Belshazzar. And it really happens at the hand of the Mede or Media Persian Empire. Okay? Down the road, we get kings like King Xerxes, the, the king of the, of the Persian Empire. But in this period, right at the start, we get Darius. And so now suddenly there's a new number one largest empire in the world. It is the Media Persian Empire, and it is now ruling over the land that Babylon, Babylon once occupied, and therefore also ruling over the exiles out of Jerusalem. That's our history lesson for the morning. That's where we are, We're orienting ourselves. Again, it's so important that we remember the Bible is true stories of actual events in actual history. Okay, so that's the world in which we are in. And it says that Daniel essentially has continued in favor. Now, text goes on in verse 3. It says, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I think there's just something really, really good for us. Daniel, again, living in exile, whatever's in front of him, Daniel does with, with excellence and with integrity. Honestly, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle Paul is talking, and he says this in, in verses 31 through 33. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Again, that's the Apostle Paul. And I think as we hear that, it might be um, our first thought could be like, well, is he like codependent or people pleaser or something? You know what I mean? We get this sort of feeling like he wants to please everyone. But I think we have to see that the point of Paul pleasing everyone is not so that people would like him necessarily. It's not so Paul would have this sort of personal, like, ah, people like me, I'm desired. It's not to shape his identity for him to be a needed and desirable person. What was the point? Do you remember? So that people would be saved. And so I think, church, what, what this says, whether, whether you're eating or drinking, do all to the glory of God, is that Christians should be a give-it-all-we've-got people. Whatever we're doing, we should be all in on what we're doing. We should be focused on the task in front of us, doing it ultimately for the glory of God, so that, as the Apostle Paul would say, more can be saved. Now, just a practical example of this, I was hanging out with a buddy of mine recently, and we were working on something together, and um, something happened, and, and a, a cuss word uh, came out of his mouth, and he immediately apologized, and I was like, oh man, you know, don't worry about it, no big deal, I, I too am a sinner in need of a Savior, right? And so um, we, we carry on. 
Later, I go home, and he sends me a text message. He's like, man, I just want to, again, I'm so sorry for, for that you know, coming out of my mouth. And again, I'm like, dude, it's okay. Again, I'm a sinner in need of a savior as well. Don't worry about it. And a lot of times what happens is because I have the title pastor, people get really weird around me, and it makes me uncomfortable. And so I just want to say, hey, look, it's, it's okay. Right? Like, and he said, no, no, no. The, that's not the example I want to set. Like he went on to share how he's like, my slip-ups have been less and less, but, but I don't want to be a person of consistent slip-ups. I just love that heart. I'm like, no, 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 I, I hear you. I would, I, he said, I would say the same thing to you if you weren't my pastor. And I want to be careful as I say that because our salvation is not dependent upon our performance. To be very, very clear, our salvation is dependent upon Jesus' performance in our place, his righteousness in our place. And yet, as people who proclaim to be Christ's followers, who have received the grace of God in our lives, we should take seriously the sin that exists in our lives and seek to put it to death. And what that looks like is not allowing sin to sort of sit in our lap, if you will. There's a proverb about, do you, do you expect to heap burning coals onto your lap and not be burned? We need to be a people, again, who are just all in on the things that we're doing for the glory of God so that he is glorified, so that people are saved. Again, I think that's just a point we see here from the text. And so what we saw here is Darius, his plan is to set Daniel over essentially the entire kingdom. Now, believe it or not, this is going to make some other people unhappy. And so we see this begin to play out in verses 4 and 5. Then the high officials... And the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint of any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Again, it just speaks to Daniel's character. There are no skeletons in Daniel's closet. There is no bribery scandal. There is no extramarital affair scandal. There is nothing. There is just Daniel being faithful to the work that he had been given to do. And so what they know is that the only way that we can trap this guy and take him down is in connection to his God. And again, I just want to say, let's be a people that the only thing they have to say against us is our devotion and our faith to God, right? What would that do? How would God use that in our lives? And so here's the plan they come up with, verses 6 through 9. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and counselors, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. That's their plan. They're going to say, hey, O king, they're trying to flatter him. They're buttering him up, and it works. Sign this rule, sign this law that makes it illegal for anyone to worship any god or any person other than you for 30 days. And in Darius's pride and his foolishness, he agrees to this because strategically, he's a new ruler over a new empire. What would sort of galvanize the people behind him more than forced worship for 30 days? That has to be in Darius's mind. So he agrees to this. He doesn't consult Daniel. He doesn't consult anybody. And now let's look at Daniel's response in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem 
he got on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. A couple of things that Daniel doesn't do. It says, upon knowing that the king signed that decree, signed that order, what doesn't he do? He doesn't rush up to the king and say, wait, 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 king, that's not fair. He doesn't rush up to the king and say, hey, king, they actually don't want to glorify you. What they're trying to do is trick you to get rid of me. I feel like that would have been a reasonable response. He doesn't complain. He doesn't go and say, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Instead, what does he do? He goes to his room. He goes upstairs. The windows are open to Jerusalem, and he prays, as was his custom. And I was reading about this, and I was thinking about this weekend, and there's just some weird details. I don't know if, it's, if you see it as well, but isn't it a bit odd? At least I felt like it was a bit odd that, that he goes to his room, and it gives us this little tiny detail about his windows being open facing Jerusalem. And I would think, again, in this situation where you know that you're a dead man if you disobey this law, why not just close the windows? Seems like a simple avoidance maneuver. Seems understandable. Why not pray in silence? Once again, that seems understandable. What I love about the Word of God is it answers these questions. It's stunning. I believe what Daniel is doing is he is directly responding to a prayer at the dedication of the temple that we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. All right, the dedication of the temple, just, and again, I'm, getting, I'm just excited about this because the Bible is just cool, right? It's so interconnected, it's so interwoven, it's so beautiful. At the dedication of the temple, so this would have been back in history, Solomon, the, the son of David, he builds this great temple. God's presence is set to dwell in, in the temple of God. And after it's been finished being built and the Ark of the Covenant is brought in, Solomon then goes and he does this dedication prayer. All of Israel is present and they can hear the words of Solomon. And among many other things, Solomon prays this in verses 36 through 39 of, of first, uh, excuse me, 2 Chronicles 6. He, he talks about uh, foreigners coming into the land and praying toward the temple. He talks about men being out at war and when they're away from the city, praying toward the temple. And then he says this in verses 36 through 39. Speaking of the people, Israel, he says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. And that's the situation that we're reading about right now. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, to which they were carried captive, and pray toward their land, which you have gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear them from heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you. So Solomon says, God, when they rebel and when you punish them by taking them into exile, which is the situation of Daniel, he then tells the people, when they turn their hearts away from their sin, let them also turn their bodies toward you as a representation of them turning their hearts and let them pray toward you, toward your holy city, toward your presence. Because we have to remember in an Old Testament context, pre-Jesus being crucified and then risen from the dead, the presence of God dwelt in the temple. 
Today, because of Jesus, to be clear, the presence of God, we have been made a holy temple. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But pre-Jesus, the presence of God is in the temple. And so what Solomon is saying, let them direct their hearts and their bodies as a representation of their hearts toward you. And so what we see here is Daniel taking a literal interpretation of Scripture and saying, I am going to believe in your promise, God, to rescue your people. I'm going to trust in your promise, right? Daniel's faith is in the faithfulness of God to overpower, that, that really overpowers his fear of man. He knows this command. He knows what the law is, but he's believing that God will hear his prayer as Solomon prophesied he would and he would rescue him. Isn't that just cool? And so that's why he doesn't close the windows. That's why he doesn't silence himself. And church, I believe that brings up a really, really important point for us. We will see God move in our lives when we trust in his promises more than we fear man's consequences. And again, I'm pulling this as best as I can from the text. We will see God move, I believe, work in our lives in, in wonderful ways when we cling and we trust to his promises more than we fear the consequences of man. Again, that's what Daniel's doing in this situation. Uh, one of my favorite verses, it's sort of like a wall art verse, you might say, Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that all things, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him are called according to his purposes, Right? That's a promise for God, that God is going to work all things out for good for those who love them and are called according to his purposes. And so in moments of difficulty, we might cling to a promise like that. Now let me, let me pause for a minute because a lot of times we're not in a season that feels like God is working out something for good. We're in seasons that are difficult, that are, that are hard, and yet we have this promise. And so how do we reconcile promises like this, that God is going to work all things out for good and for his glory for, for those who love him and are calling to his purposes? I think we have to understand sometimes how God works and how he works in ways that are a little bit different than we might expect. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when the Apostle Paul, he has given his resume of suffering, which includes being beaten, includes being shipwrecked, includes all of these horrible things. And he's been given in this context a thorn in his flesh and he goes to God and he pleads three times, take this from me. And, God, and Jesus says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. We've got the text here on the screens. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's a promise of God, and again, that's different than we might think. So if you're in a situation where you're feeling like, man, am I, I going to cater toward sort of man's or men's consequences, the consequences of men, or am I going to believe in the promises of God? He might be answering it differently than you would like him to. But the promise is that he is with you. That he is made perfect in our weakness. Because when we realize we are weak, we realize we need a savior. And when we realize we need a savior, he is glorified in and through us. Remember, Jesus promised us that he would be with us to the very end of the age. Jesus promised us that he has overcome the world. There is promise after promise after promise in the scriptures. My question, church, is do we know those promises and do we cling to those promises and do we trust that God is going to reveal himself in and through those promises? And again, I believe that's what we see Daniel doing here is clinging to the promises of God over the fear of man. Second thing I think we see here is this. 
This is a really, really difficult circumstance for Daniel. And I think how we respond in, in extreme circumstances reveals what we prioritize in normal circumstances. It does, doesn't it? What comes out of us under pressure is what we've cultivated under comfort. For Daniel, his response, do do you remember what the second half of verse 10 says? He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Church, what are your patterns of prayer, of time in God's word, of time in community with other believers? And then when you go through difficult, hard situations, what is your first response? I know for me, I'm a fix-it person. I want to just fix the problem, solve the problem right now, come up with a solution. And oftentimes, my confidence in my own flesh leads me to not go to God first and instead go to myself, which is not good. What is it for you? How do you respond under moments of trial, moments of difficulty, and what does that reveal about what you're cultivating in your day-to-day life? If we are consistently and constantly soaked, if you will, in God's word and in prayer, when hard things come, prayer and his word will be our first response. And so that's what we see from Daniel, and the text then continues on. Daniel is praying. Text picks up in verse 11. It said, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel, making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed." You might think, well, why not just change the law, Darius? Well, at this time, these kings were viewed as gods. And so changing the law was viewed as a flaw or an error or a fault. And so they would not admit fault. He could not change the law. It was set in stone. And so he he really can't get out of it. The text continues on, verses 16 through 23. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and and sleep fled from him. The king not getting some form of entertainment just reveals just how much he is conflicted in this, how much he desires to save Daniel, and he realizes that he's been tricked. Verse 19, then at at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. May God, uh, my God, send his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. 
Amen. Very familiar story, children's book story, which is a little bit twisted because what happens later is Darius, the people who had set this whole thing up, he throws them and their families into the lion's den and they are devoured immediately. It's a brutal story. And I think sometimes because we're so familiar with these stories, what happens is we sort of maybe come to our own conclusions or, or we're just like, yeah, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, I, I know, it's cool, Daniel rescues. And, and I think sometimes we get a little bit cynical almost in, in these miraculous stories of the Old Testament because we're saying, well, God, are you working miraculous things in my life? Do you still perform miracles like this of, of shutting the mouths of a lion? And what I would say to that is I, I want us to zoom out a little bit and, and just look at the big picture of what God has done in and through the life of Daniel. Again, if you've missed any of this series, I think this will be helpful for you. And if you've been here every week for this series, you'll already know this. What was God doing in this sort of big picture of what was happening in this time? He was punishing his people, right? They had sinned from him and time and time again, he said, look, I'm going to send you in exile. I'm going to come and, and bring a king against you. He's going to carry you away over and over and over again. The people sinned and rebelled and rejected God. And so in this exile, God is, in a sense, punishing his people. But that's not the only thing God is doing. What is God also, also doing? Time and time again, we see these, these kings who did not know God, did not love God, glorifying God, acknowledging God, and writing letters to their entire empire, which would have been the largest in the world, about the wonders and about the goodness of God. So what you see is God glorifying his name in the midst of this really, really difficult and hard thing. God is at work, and he's doing far more than we can ever imagine. And I think what we need to see here, too, as well, is that at this point, in the text, Daniel, he's like 70 or 80 years old. Dude is like old as, he's old. I want to be careful here. He's <laughs> an old man. Not that old, but I mean, he's pretty old, right? And I think sometimes, church, what happens in our current cultural context is that if you are an individual who views yourself beyond the median age of the group you are around, you view yourself as washed up, you might say things like, well, I paid my time, paid my dues, I did the whole church thing, I, I gave, I did all the things, I'm done. We might begin to check out, we might begin to believe this lie that says God isn't going to use me or cannot use me because of my age. And I want to just directly say to you that God desires to use you, that the church needs you, and that God is not done with you. If you are in the room and you view yourself as maybe, maybe too old or, or beyond the age of being able to help, I, I want to say this. You, you maybe have been following Jesus for longer than I've been alive. And that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable listening to me every Sunday. But here's the thing. God has done things in you and through you. And he wants to continue to use you. And church, we need you. Church, collectively, we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your counsel. We need you. And God is not done with you. Imagine the impact those in the room who are beyond the median age of our church or feel like you're old. Imagine the impact of you speaking into the lives of the young parents and families in this church in the context of life groups. That is immensely valuable, and I want our groups to not be these single mono-generation groups, but multi-generation groups because, church, we need each other. I need your wisdom. I need your counsel. I need your parenting successes and failures. Don't believe the lie that God has done with you. If God can work through this old man, Daniel, who's old as dirt, 
and he can work through Abraham, who's as good as dead. I think the scripture actually says that. And he can work through Moses, who's been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years herding sheep. If he can work through these people, through Sarah, through all of these people, he can work through you. And you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. Do not neglect that. God is not done with you in church. We need you desperately. Lastly, I want to get to this point um, back in in the text. Do you remember what, what it was that actually saved Daniel? You guys remember that? He, he says it sort of in an interesting way. Verse 23. He says, Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel, Daniel was taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. You see, it was ultimately trust, which is actually faith, that had delivered Daniel. Trust in what was, what was the faithfulness and the goodness of God that God could rescue him, that God could save him. So trust, church, faith is ultimately what delivers us from harm, from destruction. And I think, church, we've got to understand that, especially as we ask these questions like, well, you know, I'm probably not going to get thrown into a pit of lions. Praise God, that's a good thing. We don't want to get thrown into a pit of lions. But, But the reality is, and we talked about this last week, our spiritual condition on its own, uh, in and of itself, is rejection and rebellion from God. Jesus didn't come into the world, says John 3, to condemn the world, but the world was already condemned. Jesus came to save the world. And so what we need to understand is our natural trajectory is hell, which is separation from God for all time, for all eternity, into eternity future. And so what we need to understand is that what awaits us is the ultimate den of lions. What awaits us is the ultimate fiery furnace from Daniel chapter 3. What awaits us on our own natural condition is destruction. And what was it that saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3? What was it that saves Daniel now? It is faith and faith alone. And so church, we have to understand faith is what saves us, not works. By the grace of God, we are viewed as righteous before God through what Jesus has done. And so my question, church, is do you have faith in Christ? Do you believe it? Have you come to this individual point in your life where you have realized you are separated from God? That you're cut off and that you need to be reconciled to God? God. You sitting in the room this morning, if you aren't yet reconciled to God, is evidence that God knows you and sees you and is working in your life. And for those of us here this morning who've been following Jesus for a long time and you hear these gospel presentations, and I think sometimes we begin to check out because you're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard it. Would we plead together that God would rescue and reconcile and save people in this city and he would use us to do it? Here's, here's what we see that the king say. After this whole experience, after we see Daniel rescued, he says this in verse 26, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His, his dominion shall there be no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders. He works um, in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And church, the reason I I read that text now is because sometimes I think we underestimate what God can do through a group of people who are committed to live faithfully to him. 
if God can bring praises from the king of wherever, what can God do in the midst of our city? Who can God save in your family? Who can God save in your friendships? And how can God use you as a part of the process? Church, our, our, our job is not to be perfect. Our job is not to be eloquent. I've shared over and over again the first time I ever shared the gospel. It was a train wreck. I messed up two illustrations. I kid you not. I babbled on forever. And I finally stopped talking and said, so you want to believe in Jesus? And that young man responded to me, perfectly articulated the gospel in a way that I didn't. I was just the dummy who was at the table. God was working. God was doing things. And so I, I ask you, what does God want to do through you? How does God want to use you? And maybe for some of us, we need to cling to those promises to say, no, God has promised he's going to save people. And God has promised that he's going to use his church. For whatever reason, church, we're his plan A. I don't know why, but that is his choice. We are plan A in the process to bring dead people through Christ to life. God is the one who saves. We're involved in the process. And so church, as we come to an end of our time together this morning, I want to lead us in a time of prayer to ask God by the power of his spirit to help us cling to his promises and use us for his glory. And so, church, let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for this study of Daniel. We praise you for your miraculous works. By the power of your spirit, God, we ask that you would make alive to us your promises, that you're going to save people, that you're going to change people, that people really can go from death spiritually to life spiritually, that people can really be made into new creations in Christ, and that you really do desire to use us. And so God, by the power of your spirit, would you ignite a flame in us that desires to see you work and move in the ways that only you can, that we would make bold steps of faith that may seem irrational or illogical to the world, but we know God that you are leading us, that you are directing us, and that you are faithful to care for us. You're faithful to give us every need that we have. You are faithful to lead us, Father. You're faithful to fill us with your spirit. Jesus, you have overcome the world, and we cling to that today. For anybody in the room yet this morning who doesn't yet know Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity this morning to say, I, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I repent I turn away from my sin. I believe, Jesus, that you, you took the wrath of God for sin upon yourself so I would be spared the wrath of God. I trust you with my life, and I want to ask you, Father, to give me a new life, set me on a new trajectory, and use me for your glory. God, would you do that this morning? We love you. We trust you. It's in Christ's name that we come to you. Amen.